This morning, we're going to just hit this thing head on. And instead of kind of doing this, normally I start out and kind of uh, go some illustrations. But I'm going to jump right into the Bible this morning. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. If you have a Bible, uh, please turn there with us. If you do not have a Bible, see us afterwards. We'd love to get you one. If you're here this morning and the Bible is brand new to you, or maybe you're kind of checking this thing out, kind of exploring, we'll have some of the verses on the screen for you. Um, But again, if you have trouble finding Philippians, you're going to find it roughly three quarters or more through the Bible in what we call the New Testament. It's some books around it you'll see would be Galatians and Ephesians. And then you'll run into Philippians, Philippians chapter two. Now we're going to contrast Philippians chapter two with this verse here. It comes in an early part of our Bible, Isaiah written uh, quite a while before Philippians, but it says it this way. This is really what we're going to look at this morning is pride, pride at its finest. Pride is, is I believe the first sin of the Bible in the Bible, recorded in the Bible. And it's also probably the root of any sin that you might commit or that I might commit, it is probably at the root of why you committed that sin is pride. And here it is. This is the story in Isaiah 14. Maybe you can look at it this week if you'd like. This is the record of Satan, how Satan became Satan. Uh, It goes this way. How you have fallen from the heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. Now that's how Satan was described in heaven. I mean, look at those terms. Morning star, son of the dawn. I mean, Satan is, was, and still is, in my opinion, a beautiful and very powerful creature. I mean, he had a very, very prominent place in heaven. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart. Now look at what Satan uh, kind of five times you're going to see this one phrase pop up. You have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights, on the sacred mountains. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Isaiah 14 verses 12 to 15. Kind of that story of this is how Satan became Satan. Now look at Philippians chapter 2. There's a, there's a stark contrast between Jesus and, and what we saw here in Isaiah 14. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. It says it this way. Your attitude, referring to you and I, those of us who would, if you're here this morning, you say, I'm a Christ follower, this would apply to you. If you're here this morning, say, I'm not a Christ follower, welcome, glad you're here, listen in, um, but this text doesn't directly hit you. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in the very nature God. Now, this, we're not going to dig deep into this, but just try and... This is an overwhelming. So Jesus is in the very nature God, but yet did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Catch with that. Made himself nothing. You see a contrast here already? Isaiah 14 to this. I mean, I mean Satan kind of steps up, says, I will. Jesus says, I'm going to make myself nothing taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So Jesus came to this earth as man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. One of those shameful ways to die there in the first century. Therefore, God exalted him. Look at the contrast. What happens to Satan because he stands up and says, I will. 
He's brought low, right? Now look what happens to Jesus. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what we see, very huge contrast kind of between Satan and Jesus, this I will versus his will. The very heart of pride is captured right there. I mean, if you think about Jesus... Again, some of you know the story, but I'll bring everyone up to speed on it. Jesus, in his final hours of his life, before he goes to the cross, before he's arrested, where do you find him? He's in a garden with his closest friends. And what is he doing there? He's praying, right? What's he praying? Those of you know the story. He's praying. He's looking for, it's one of his darkest times. I mean, it is, it is ugly. He's emotionally distraught. He's physically distraught. He's actually sweating what looks like blood, it says. I mean, he is just worked up deep in agony and in pain. And he cries out to God. And he says, God, if there is any other way to do this thing, any other way to bring these people that you and I love into relationship with, there's any other way to do it, can we please, please do it? But then what's he say? Not my will be done but your will. It's this, it's at the very root of pride is basically me rising up and saying, you know what? Life's really about my will, my agenda, my desires, what I want, what I think, what I process, what I feel. And it goes on as opposed to saying, God, not my will, but your will. Some of the verses that run along with this, that kind of set the stage and we're going to dive headlong into it. Pride goes before, what's the word? Say it out loud. Destruction. You saw it happen with Satan, right? He came low. He was brought down. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit, a proud spirit, a boastful spirit before a fall. Earlier in that same chapter, Proverbs 16, verse 5, says it this way. The Lord, now capture this. Now, this isn't an American westernized culture that we hear everything through the Bible is God is love. God is merciful. God is compassionate. God is gracious. Look at this verse, Proverbs 16, 5. This hits our American ears tough at times. The Lord, say this word with me. The Lord detests. Think about that. Is there anything in your life that you detest? Have you ever used that word? I detest. It's usually something pretty passionate. The Lord detests all the proud of heart. You want to find yourself on the opposite end of God's good graces. I mean, walk around proud. It says the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this. I mean, the, the, the writer here says, I want you to know this for sure. Don't be deceived. Just be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. And then the verse um, that we're actually, this is kind of a segue into next week here, this verse. This verse is going to be hit head on next week, and, and we're going to really unpack this one. But here it is. Just look at it this morning. God, look at the word. Say it with me. God opposes. Have you ever opposed something? Have you ever stood against it and say, I'm going to fight this thing? God opposes. I mean, I don't know about you, but I want to be God being my team. I want to be on his team. I'm not sure about, I want to be um, on the opposite side of that one. I mean, that's kind of like, that's kind of like the, the second and third grade boys basketball team that I coach going up against the 76ers. I mean, it's just, it's not going to be pretty. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I mean, this subject of pride. Now, here's what I've come to realize in my own life, and I think it's probably true of most of us in this room. See if I'm right in this. Most of us in this room, you will admit at some level, probably, at some level that you struggle with pride. At some level, at some time in this week, in this month, you will probably say, you know what? I might be proud. 
But few of us in this room, including myself, and this week, man, opened my eyes big on this one. Few of us in this room understand just how prevalent it is. And more than that, how ugly it really is. It is gruesome. I mean, it's funny to me. I seldom hear people stand up and say, I'll hear people confess to pornography. I'll hear people confess to struggling with getting drunk. I'll hear people confess to having an affair. I'll hear people confess to all kinds of things, but I seldom hear anyone ever stand up or sit in a small group and say, hey, pray for me because I really struggle with pride. But it's ugly. It is gruesome. And it wrecks havoc on a life and it will put me at the opposite end from God. Now, I thought about this and there's so many forms of pride we could look at, but the one that we're really going to kind of unpack this morning is the I'm better than you pride. Kind of the one that says, Hey, anything you can do, you can finish the statement, right? I can do it better, right? Yeah. I mean, anything you can do, I can do better. I mean, in this, and this comes out the I'm better than you pride. I mean, there's a ton of, I mean, low self-esteem, for example, is often a form of pride. It's, it's interesting how you, how you unpack that and talk with some really good trained counselors and psychologists and they'll begin to unpack. And a lot of times people with low self-esteem are actually very proud people. Um, and there's all kinds of forms of pride that we can unpack, but the I'm better than you pride, it typically manifests itself with competitive spirits, a drive to win, boasting, you know, I'm the greatest. You're going to see a lot of it this afternoon. If those are going to go home and watch football this afternoon and see who's going to the Super Bowl, there's going to be a lot of this one floating around. Um, there's a lot of self-talk and look at me. I'm great. Uh, I mean, I see this again. I coach boys basketball, second and third grade. And there's a lot of this one running around on that team. I mean, we spanked them. They'll say, I mean, yeah. And uh, I'm like, guys, you got them by two points. But we spanked them, though. I mean, I just, it cracks me up, these little boys. And they'll, they'll walk around like, hey, am I the best on the team? Am I, I scored two points. Oh, yeah, well, I scored 10. I mean, it's just this. And then they start to elevate their stories. It's because they want to be better. And some of that's cool. I mean, I, God put a desire in us to compete and to, um, you know, so I'm not, but it's the ambient part. But the place where it really comes out, this is what I'm packed. This is the heart of this morning. The place where it really gets ugly is the judgment and criticism of others. That's where the I'm better than you pride takes its full root, takes its full growth, and I think it gets ugly. Kind of, it's kind of prime the pump to where we see this in our culture. When I was a kid, uh, it's, still, it's still there, but though the media form, pay, the paper, you know, it's kind of dying away. But when I was a kid, you know, the Peanuts cartoon was always the top cartoon on top of the, on the paper, in the Sunday morning paper when it came. And I loved getting it. I loved reading it. And uh, it's been around for years. But, you know, these two characters, Linus and Lucy, uh, Lucy's the one who pulls the football away from Charlie Brown. Those of you who know her, she's, she's a... She's an interesting character. Those of you who know her, um, she's a little critical at times, but this is kind of, this story goes this way. Um, Linus says her brother, he's the one who walks around with the blue blankie. Uh, why are you always anxious to criticize me? And Lucy responds back. Well, I just think I have a knack for seeing other people's faults. And he says, well, what about your own faults? And he, she, and Lucy, you can see it there. I have a knack for overlooking them. Uh, or, or the other one, I couldn't find this one. I looked all over online, but I couldn't find it. But I remember reading about it and seeing it. Lucy says to Linus again and another one, you know, it's really strange. It just happens by looking at you. And Linus goes, falls into the trap and says, well, what happens? And Lucy replies, I can feel a criticism coming. I mean, it's just how she views life. I mean, she's the one, she's the one, right? If you know the story, she sets up the little counseling booth and come pay your 10 cents or five cents. And I'll give you my two, my two cents, I guess is how she'll say it. I mean, this is how she kind of sees herself though. I make the world better. I'm a positive force. That's what a lot of us do. 
I don't criticize because I'm proud. I criticize because I'm helping, because I'm calling the error out, because I'm speaking truth. But at the heart of it, we got to challenge ourselves. But at the heart of it, sometimes I'm speaking it because I'm just proud. Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. I mean, have movies written or put out on that in her life. And uh, some of you know the book, know the story. One of the main characters in there, Mr. Darcy, remember how he's described? He's described as a man who never looks at a woman but to see a what? Blemish. Or it's kind of like, here's another place where this criticism comes out. I heard a story, another pastor shared this story about a young pastor who had a middle-aged woman kind of come in. He's brand new to church. This middle-aged woman comes into his office and says, Pastor, I really need help. I'm struggling with pride. And he says, well, okay, tell me the story. So she unpacks it and and it's ugly. I mean, she talks about how she's so beautiful and I just see myself as I'm just gorgeous. And the pastor's sitting there going, okay. And and she starts talking about, you know, when I walk through the church, when I greet others in the lobby, I just have this constant thought that I'm so much prettier than they are. So the pastor, there's this long moment of silence and he's a young guy and he hasn't learned the finer graces of how to communicate yet. And he says, it's interesting. I'm not sure that's pride. And she kind of is like, well, what do you mean? Well, I just think you're wrong. (laughs) Right? Sorry, I had to to get it in there. But it's this, it runs, it's, it's this criticism of others. And what we're really going to kind of unpack this morning out of Philippians chapter 2 is proud people, what we really struggle to do. I'm saying we because I struggle with pride, uh, especially as I study this this week, I realized, boy, it's ugly. Proud people struggle to identify evidences of grace in others. In other words, proud people struggle to look at the, those of us around us, those of us living life with me, and looking at those people and saying, I really see God at work in your life. We, we struggle to do that, proud people. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2. If you're, you should still be there. Uh, look at the verses that led into those verses we read. These are some, <laughs> these, these verses are crazy. Don't need a lot of explanation. Don't need a lot of deep teaching. I think just they need a lot of living is probably the best way to put it. Chapter 2, verse 1. This is the apostle Paul is his name. He's writing to the church of Philippi. And he says, if you have any encouragement... From being united with Christ. So if, if he's, in other words, he's speaking again to Christians. He says, if you're in Christ and Christ is in you, if you're a Christian, and that should bring you encouragement. If you have any encouragement from that, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship from the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. So if you're in Christ and Christ has gripped your heart and you're a Christian and you're a Christ follower, then make my joy complete. So make me happy, he says, by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. So we could end it and say, okay, let's all go home and be like Jesus. Let's love like Jesus. Let's be like Jesus. But Paul goes a little, he he says, no, we got to unpack this. Let's make this really practical. Look at verse three. Do, what's the word? Nothing. You say, what's nothing mean? So I'm saying these verses, you're smart people. You can read these verses and walk home. And I mean, this isn't a matter of me explaining. This is just, do. what does nothing mean? Nothing means nothing. So that means, okay, I got up this morning and I made myself breakfast. So don't make breakfast out of, look what it says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Don't brush my teeth. Don't get dressed. As I drive here this morning, as I say hello to my kids, as I kiss them goodnight, as I go to work tomorrow, as I do nothing, little or big, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, catch this next one. 
But in humility, this one, this one's crazy, but in humility, consider others better than who? Yourself. See, I think it's interesting to me, nowhere do the writers ever encourage us to love ourselves because I think they just start from the place that we love ourselves. Those of you who've had children, what do children learn to do early on? They cry when they need help, right? They, as a matter of fact, what, what I have read and what I understand, I'm not a doctor and I'm not, you know, in but what I've read and understand, when a child doesn't know how to cry out for help, they have what they call failure to thrive. It's actually a very bad thing and they're very unhealthy and there's a problem. So we're born with this innate ability to, I'm, I need a change. I'm going to cry. I need food. I'm going to cry. And uh, we have this, we're, we understand. So nowhere. So it's, you know, my, my three-year-old right now, her, her thing is when we still keep her in a crib because she is full of life and she's life all over the place and just happens everywhere she goes. So we keep her in a crib yet because we're like, we just want to contain this life as long as we can. And she hasn't figured out how to crawl out. But what she'll do, I, it cracks me up. She'll, we'll hear her. She's awake and she wants to get up. So what's she do? And I'm not going to do this because you'll break all your ears. Get me out of here. And she screams at the top of her lungs through the whole house for us to hear. I mean, children, we are born. We as humans just kind of have this ability. We think pretty highly of ourselves. And everyone should drop everything to come take care of me. So the writer here, Paul, doesn't say, he says, so as highly as you think of yourself, think of others better. That's crazy, right? So the people sitting to your left, to your right, in front of you, behind you, guess what? You should think of them as better. Why don't we do this? Let's do this. Okay, I know some of you don't like when I do this, but turn to those people to your left and your right, and you say to them, you're better than me. Go ahead and say it. Just go ahead. Just turn to them and say them. Now, some of you, some of you have been waiting a long time to hear those words, right? Some of you have been going, it is about time. And some of you are sitting down front here and don't have anyone to say it to. So maybe, I don't know, we're, Chris, you're better than me. How's that? <laughs> so treat others as though they're better. I mean, that's crazy to think about. I mean, that's just, that, wow. So then it goes on to say, look at verse 4. Each of you, I mean, you're like, okay, Paul, that's enough of this. Let's just move on, get to your next point. But he goes deeper. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, Okay, so I've got a lot of interest in life. You've got interest in life, right? We we're, we're all have interest in life. We have things that we want to accomplish, goals that we want to move forward. But also, so he doesn't say don't look out for your interest. Move your goals and agendas forward. But also, look to the interest of who? Others. So as you're considering others better than yourself, you're also going to walk alongside of them and say, hey, what are your interests in life? And let me come alongside of you and help you. And then he unpacks. That's where he then says, hey, look at what Jesus did for us. And here it is. My heart this morning is to let's, let's give us a practical tool to really do this well. So I thought what we do is let's look at Paul himself and see how Paul does it. Turn a few books back in your Bible to 1 Corinthians. If you're in Philippians, just start paging towards the front of your Bible if you're not familiar with the Bible. If you need help finding it, 1 Corinthians will be a few books back towards the front yet. 1 Corinthians. The same writer, same thinker. Same guy who wrote Philippians is going to, and he gives us here a very subtle way of looking at others better than ourselves, as opposed to the critical spirit sometimes. And here's what he does. Paul actively looks for evidences of God's grace in others. So when he looks at you, if he were here today and he'd walk alongside of you, what he's going to see in you first and foremost is where God is working in you and where God is alive in you before he calls out the junk in your life. Now, 
how do I know that? <laughs> well, here's how I know that. I want you to picture this church. Some of you know what this church is all about. This is a, written to a church in a city called Corinth. Some of you say, okay, I, I, but bring us all up to speed. Here's what this church, and I want you to think as I talk this out. Okay, if you were the pastor, the church planner, the missionary, the whoever it might be, writing a letter to this church, what would you say to them in your opening sentences? Okay, here's, here's what this church is. The very first thing we know about this church is they have some serious doctrinal error. I mean, they, they've messed this thing up pretty bad. So bad that they deny who Jesus is and the, and the centrality of who Jesus is and the gospel and the cross of Jesus and his death. And they've gotten sucked into let's read and look at all this wonderful wisdom of man. And, and Paul just says, no, 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 no. <laughs> you got this thing way mixed up. Then you continue reading and they go into this and we do this here in our culture too. We, we have this um, personality cult following. They do the same thing. They come along and say, hey, I'm all about Pastor Paul. No, I'm all about Pastor Paulus. No, I'm all about Peter. Oh, yeah, well, I'm all about Jesus. I mean, it's like they're trying to one-up everyone. And they, it's kind of like, you know, I'm all about Chris. I'm all about Adam. I'm all about, I'm all about James McDonald. I'm all about Andy Stanley. I'm all about Rick Warren. I mean, it's like we, it's, I, it pains my heart at times. But I see it here. Paul deals with nothing new in our culture. How people don't flock to churches because of the body and what Jesus only flock to churches to follow one man. Same problem here. Then you continue to page through the book and you begin to see they've got some real problems in the area of sexuality, real problems. I mean, it's talked about repeatedly through the book. It's talked about prostitution kind of has come up. If you, if you really read into the book, divorce and affairs are happening, but then there's one in, in chapter five where Paul actually writes and he says, guys, you're doing something so gruesome and so ugly that those outside the church that are not Christ followers are embarrassed and they blush. I mean, they look at you and think, oh, they got problems. But you, he says, walk around with tolerance towards that person as though you're all graceful and merciful and let's just walk with these people. And he says, no, 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 that's sick. That's messed up. He calls it out. And then you continue reading, you see they've got problems with lawsuits. They're suing one another. They're taking each other into court. So it's like the people sitting next to you, it's like you're ticked off at them. You owe me this, and they're going to court. You read at one place, their public gatherings were so ugly. In chapter 11, you actually see this. You actually see Paul say, you know what? It'd be better off if you guys just wouldn't meet. I mean, because when you get together to have your public gatherings, it's actually worse off for you than if you just stay home. And then he goes on and he says, and some of you, when you come to communion, the, the Lord's table, the, you know, the bread and the cup, some of you know that. He says, you guys are coming and getting drunk. Imagine that, coming to church to get drunk. That's a new one, isn't it? I mean, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen that as a pastor. Someone, I've had drunk people show up for church, but never coming here to get drunk. I mean, and then it's like some of you are coming here to just have a gluttonous feast. And he says, and then to top all of this off, and there's other problems there. You can read the book, but to top all of this off, they don't like Paul himself. So the leader of this church, they, don't, they say, we don't, your authority, we don't buy into it. And quite frankly, we don't really like you. Now, picture yourself. It's, it's hard enough to lead a church, to lead a church or lead any organization through change and to make some adjustments, let alone when they don't like you. <laughs> I mean, have you ever tried that? To lead something, lead a group of people when they don't like you? Uh, it's hard. So what would you say? If you're Paul and you're looking at this group of people, what do you say to them? What do you write to them? How do you address them? How do you open up your letter? Look at verse four of chapter one. Look at what he says. I don't know about you, but this, I don't think this is how I would have opened my letter up. I think I might've had some harsher things to say, but here it comes. Look at verse four. 
I, what's the word if you have an NIV Bible? Always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. So what's he doing? What's he looking for? I have it up on the screen here. He wants to see evidences of God's grace before he nails all the junk. So it's like I always, I mean, this is a crazy term. I mean, I always thank God for you. I mean, when I walk with you, when I live with you, when I interact with you, I always thank God. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not how I would have opened this letter up. I might have opened this letter up by saying, you know what, guys, this is the last letter I'm writing you, and this is my resignation. I want nothing to do with you anymore. I'm out of here. This is ridiculous. I didn't ask for this. I didn't sign up for this. I'm done. But he doesn't say that. He says, I always thank God for you. It's crazy. I think, you know, the reason why I may not do this is because I'm proud. C.J. Mahaney, a pastor down in the kind of the D.C. area, uh, writes this. He wrote this great book. If any of you are readers, it would be a great read. It's an easy read. It's like 80 pages long. It's one of those really little tiny books, you know, that you're like, yeah, I can get through this one. Uh, It's called, I think it's called, if you want, I can put it on Facebook this week and let you know what the name of it is. But in his book, written all about humility, he says this. Only those who are humble. He's looking at Paul's life. He looks at this example of 1 Corinthians. Only those who are humble can consistently, hence the word always, can consistently identify evidences of grace in others who need adjustment or change. It's something the proud and the self-righteous are in, uh, this word is strong, incapable of doing. They can't do it. If I'm proud, I can't look at you and not think a critical thought. If I'm proud, I can't look at you and and really see God at work in your life. My first gut response is going to be, whoa, they got a problem. Now, Paul, as he talks about this, it's his theology that actually drives this because Paul understands something. This is the real practical point of this. If I'm a Christian, I was acted upon by God before I ever responded to him, ever. It's a big deal. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, again, a verse that Paul, same guy, wrote. And he says, while we were yet sinners, what's it say? Let me know the rest of the verse. Christ died for us. So in other words, while I'm sitting around as a sinner, while I've got problems, while I'm far from God, where I'm an enemy of God, where I'm alienated from God, God looks down and says, man, I want to move in his direction. While I'm yet a sinner, Christ dies for us. God acts. Look at, look at chapter one. He uses this word. There's a word he uses three times. Look at verse one of chapter one. Paul, what's the word? Called to be an apostle. Paul understands the sovereignty of God's call in his life. Paul understands that I was called to this. Look at verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. And what's the word? Called. God moved in your direction. God called. God. And look down at verse 9. God who has, what's the word? Called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. So God moved in our direction first. See, the fundamental explanation for my spiritual growth is not that I know more, I memorized more, I'm smarter, I'm wiser, I work harder, I, and you go on down the list. The fundamental explanation is because God's grace was alive and active in my heart, and he has done a work in me. But see, most of us don't approach life like that. Most of us approach life as though... <laughs> You know what? I'm smarter. I worked harder. I'm wiser. I am who I am because of what I have done. 
and what I continue to do. Therefore, when I look out at you, I say, well, you're where you're at because obviously you're got problems. But see, when I understand that where I am at is first and foremost a resp- the reality of God's grace in my life, and I respond from that grace, that when I come to you, my first priority is to see where is God working in your life so I can come alongside of God and work with him, not against him. And if I interact with people who are not Christians, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, and you're caught up in some kind of junk in life, and your life's a wreck, you know what I'm doing? I'm not going to walk up to you and say, oh my goodness, you've got to get your life changed. I'm going to walk up and say, hey, have you ever met Jesus? Let's just talk. Because the only thing that's different between me and a person who doesn't know Jesus is what? This is huge. Is Jesus. Many of us don't live that way. We start living as though, hey, um, you really got your life fixed up. And here, let me tell you all about it. C.J. Mahaney goes on to say it this way in his book. Again, I'll continue that quote that I had up earlier. Too many Christians. And as I read this, I thought, really? But the more I read it, I thought, you know what? I could say Adam. I could, instead of saying too many Christians, Adam, too many Christians are more readily aware of the absence of God and they are more aware of sin than they are of grace. We interact with our spouses, our friends at school, our kids. I mean, we see quick, well, they got a problem. We'll see it first and foremost before we look at them and say, God is at work in this life. God's at work here. I mean, God, he says it. Paul says it, 1 Corinthians 8, God is at work. He's called you. Philippians chapter 2, where we were, verses 12 to 13, God says, hey, he started a good work and he's going to continue it. Now, let's make this really practical, really, really practical. So does this mean that I never confront the junk in your life or the sin in your life? Does this mean you never confront me because we're just supposed to walk around as glass, glass half full people positive and encouraging and just, man, okay, I see the mess you're making in your life, but I'm not going to confront you because I'm, I'm just supposed to look for God at work in your life and the grace. That helps works. I think in answering that question, I think we get a real practical way of living this out day in and day out. Only with appreciation for the evidences of grace in your life and in my life can I truly carry out, in my opinion, Philippians chapter two, where I think of you as better than me. Think how this normally works. Let's talk with friends first. If you have friends at school, you have friends at school that say they're Christians. Okay. You're a Christian. They say they're Christians and you find a Facebook post or a tweet about you that stuck a knife right in your back and they're sharing it for the whole world to hear. And you're ticked off. They're betraying you. They're gossiping about you. You're hurt. You're deeply, deeply hurt. How do you approach them? Why do you approach them? See, what most of us have a tendency to do is we don't approach them as though they're better than us. We approach them as you hurt me, you're wrong, and I need to correct you. Right? Isn't that how we do it? But see, what ends up happening, when I go to confront that person, they know. We're we're smart people, guys. We know if if I'm that person who did the hurting, when you come to confront me, I know whether you're for me or whether you're really just coming because you're for who? Yourself. See, what a lot of us do is we go to confront the junk in another's life. Why? Because I want my life to be easier. I want my life to be better. I need to correct you because you are wrong. And I don't ever have problems like this, by the way, but you are wrong. So we go to them and we go to confront them and they sense this guy's not, this girl's not for me. But when I walk with them and say, okay, I am, they are better than me. 
God is it active. It's someplace in their life. And God in some capacity is doing a work. And God isn't alive and active and living inside of them. That I'm going to come and walk alongside of them. Because I know the best thing for them to do is to learn not to gossip and backstab. Because their life will be better for it. And guess what? In the process, I'm going to enjoy it too. Take us into marriage. You know, husbands. Some of you have some things you'd like to tell your wife, right? But how many of us go to talk to our spouses, husbands to your wives, really coming to them and saying, you know what? You're better than me. I really believe that. See, most of us, we want to go talk to our spouses because you just made my life, honey, really difficult. And you've got a problem. See, what I find happening when we do this then is I'm now the savior. I've got it all together. I've got it all right. I'm coming to set you right. As opposed to walking in alongside and say, where is God at work here? Where is, let's look for the evidence of grace. Let's come alongside of him and let's be for you because you're better than me. And let's walk through this together. We do this with, with kids and raising kids, right? I mean, parents, most of us correct our kids because why? Because we're smart, we know better, and we got to show them the way. Really? (laughs) How about, is God alive in them? Is God active in them? And can I cooperate with God and and identify that first and walk them, identify evidences of grace in their lives first and foremost? But most of us, we don't do this. Here's another way to say it. Maybe this will make it even more practical. Max Lucado said this years ago. I don't have the exact quote. I looked for it this week. I couldn't find it. I don't remember where I heard him say it. Those of you who know Max Lucado, great writer, great author, he says this. When interacting with someone who is a Christ follower, who's a Christian, and they're really messed up, really messed up, I mean, extremely, he says what's important for us to do is start first and foremost with the imagination of imagine what they would be without Jesus. You ever thought about that? That person sitting next to you that's really messed up, just imagine what they'd be without Jesus. So what he's really saying is the same thing Paul says is walk into their life, look for evidences of grace in his life in their life first and walk with them out of it. Because when you read 1 Corinthians, Paul confronts some real junk in there. Real junk. But the people, I think, know that he's for them. Luke 18. And this is what we'll use to land the plane this morning. Luke 18 says it this way. Now look at who Jesus tells the story to. This is important. To some, so he's speaking to a crowd to some who were confident of their own righteousness. So he's looking to people who are sitting around going, I'm pretty good, dude. I'm a pretty good girl. I've got it pretty much together. And looked down, look at the criticism of others, and looked down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable or this story. Here's the story. It goes like this. Some of you are familiar with the story. A room like this happens on a Sunday morning. Probably back then it was on a Saturday. But a room like this happens. It fills up with people to come and quote unquote worship God. Jesus then begins to tell the story about two individual people amongst the whole group. The first one is the good guy in the story. The one that's got the one that the one that honestly most of us would want our daughters to marry. Dresses good, successful in life, obeys all the rules, obeys mom and dad, good moral person. I mean, this is a good, the spiritual leader in his community. I mean, this is a good person. So he is gathered, and as he gathers, Jesus tells the story that he is looking around the room, and he picks out a second guy in the room. And he, this guy, Jesus says, is a sinner. He's known. So the first one's known in the community as being a good guy. The second one's the bad guy. The one that he's a sinner, he's a tax collector. And in that culture, that's just horrible, and everyone knows it and he knows it, and, and he, so these two walk into the room. 
the good guy looks across at the bad guy and begins his prayer. Okay, so the singing happens, the worship band comes up and they begin singing and, and he's sitting there and he's praising God. His hands are probably raised because he wants everyone to see I'm a good guy. And man, there everyone's like, wow, I really respect this guy. And he's in his heart saying this, God, boy, thank you that I'm not like him. I mean, it's, it, when Jesus tells the story, it almost seems like, really? <laughs> Jesus, couldn't you make it a little more subtle? I mean, couldn't, I mean, really, people gather and just say, I'm glad I'm not like him. God, I praise you that I, and he's worshiping God. Now, Jesus tells the story of what's going on. The second guy, he isn't raising his hands. There's no raising hands at all. Remember, his head is bowed. He is actually, it says, he's afflicting himself. He's beating his chest because he feels that poorly about himself. He's pounding his chest. And all Jesus tells the story, Jesus says, he is crying out to God and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm jacked up. I'm messed up, God. I need your help. Okay, two men happening in a worship service. Now, Jesus ends the story. And he shocks the crowd by saying this, Luke 18, verse 14. I tell you that this man, the bad guy, the sinner, rather than the other, now catch this, this is huge, went home, what's the word that he uses? Justified, made right before God. In other words, righteous, holy, set apart. He went home justified before God. You're thinking, really? Really? Really, Jesus? I mean, the proud guy's probably sitting there. The good guy's thinking, well, no, no, come on, Jesus. Really? I mean, he's got some junk in his life, Jesus. And I pointed out, I sized him up. But Jesus says, no, no, no. He went home justified before God for everyone who exalts himself will be what? Humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's interesting to me, I heard a story of a third grade Another pastor shared this of a third grade Sunday school teacher who stood up to teach this to his class, the same story. And he gets done teaching it. And, and he says to the class, you know, do you get the moral of the story, the point, the big picture of the story? And, and a little boy sticks his hand up with all kinds of excitement, exuberance. He says, absolutely, I do. And so the teacher calls on him and the little boy says, the more of the story is, I thank God that I'm not like that Pharisee. Let that settle in a minute. Isn't that what we do? We read our New Testament Bible and we hate the Pharisees. In the church, we hate them. To call someone a Pharisee today, I mean, it's like an insult. But in that New Testament culture, to call someone a Pharisee is really like, wow, he's a Pharisee. He's got it all together. But see, we don't really truly get the heart of this story because the heart of this story is, you know what? Do you know what? Do you know why I'm drawn in and justified before God is because of God's mercy and grace in my life, not what I have done. It's because I have humbled myself and I realize that I am broken and lost without him. And I call out to him and say, God, it's you that needs to help me. It's you that needs to save me. And it's you because left to me, I've got a real problem here. I know that I'm a bad guy. The other guy's coming together and going, yeah, I got a problem. I know I've got issues, but I'm a pretty good dude. Look at them. See, the real heart of this story, what I pull out of this story, the real heart of this is often I'm critical of others and I can't see God's grace in you because I'm doing it to make myself feel better before God. Isn't that why we do it? God praise you that I'm not like them because man, look at them. Look how bad I could be, God. I got it pretty together here. I'm, and, and God looks down and says, well, Adam, it's interesting. They're not the standard. 
They are not the same. When you stand before me, Adam, I'm not going to bring all these other people around and say, hey, did you measure up to their life? I'm going to stand in front of you, and I'm going to say, do you measure up to my life? And when we can begin to orient ourselves to that picture, when I can come into church and I can put my hands up and say, God, you're the standard, suddenly I look a lot like that sinner. Even if I think I'm the good guy, suddenly I can start to see all the areas of my life. Wow, God, I fall pretty short. And if I don't have some help here, I'm in big trouble. And then what ends up happening, God works in our lives and we step out and then in grace, and he continues to work. And it's his work in me that ultimately, ultimately drives the growth that I so desperately need. See, the heart of the story is God have mercy on me, a sinner. And then as I view other people, as I view others, what I really want to do is walk into your life and see where God's at work in you. Because see, the interesting thing is you may struggle with things that I don't, but guess what? I probably struggle with things that you don't. And so it's so silly how we judge one another and size one another up because where God may have given you a real victory, I'm still struggling, but where God may have given me a real victory, you're still struggling. So measure with God and learn to say, listen, I want to walk into your life and see where God is at work, God is alive, and the evidences of grace in your life long before we start correcting and, and being critical and judging and stating things. And then if I walk alongside of people who don't know Jesus, if you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus again. If you've got friends that don't know Jesus, coworkers that don't know Jesus, <laughs> it's not about correcting their behavior. The only thing that makes you any better than them is Jesus in your life. You know, a heart that reorients itself to this message of grace and growth by Jesus, period. When my heart really grasps that afresh and anew on a daily basis, really grasps when I'm saying grace and mercy that God bestows on us, suddenly I don't have the same need to get a leg up on everyone else. Because I recognize God's grace that has led me down this road. And when I walk with you, I want to see that same grace happen. So I go to prayer. I want to just read this verse. And this is a segue. This is what we're going to start with next week. First Peter chapter five. And we're going to unpack this one. And it's again, as I shared at the beginning of this series, this is a hard series. This is a hard series. As I, each week when I begin to prep this, I'm like, oh my goodness, can I even stand up and preach this? I'm far from living it. So again, but just go out of here this morning with these words. These are, whew. God opposes, again, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to them. Let's read that together. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, boys, I studied this week. Um, I just stand here and pray to you, kind of let people in the prayer that I've had all week. I realized how ugly this thing called, I knew I was struggled with pride. I mean, but man, when you really look at how ugly it is and how deep it is and how gruesome it is and how it separates us from you. God, may we be people. Those of us who are here this morning say, I'm a Christian. May, may I be a person who is constantly daily on a continual basis, realizing that I've been acted upon by you and it's your grace and your mercy that enables me to live for you. May we never forget that. And God, as we interact with others, may we be graceful people. May we look for your evidence of work in their life before we step in and try and correct and size up and judge. God, people that are here this morning that don't know you, 
God, thanks. Glad you're here. I know this message was very much geared um, towards a person who would say, I'm a Christian, but God, I pray that they're able to listen and take this in. And maybe, maybe God, they've got some own hurt in their lives from, from Christians not loving them very well. So they might be sitting there going, amen, preach it. But I pray for those people. I pray for people that don't know you. And I pray that they would know as we end this service, that they would just kind of think and reflect on you're the standard, not others. And they may be living better than some of us, but when they stand before you in eternity, you're going to look at them and say, hey, did you measure up to me? And God, when that standard is laid before us, it's scary because we don't, and we know it. We intuitively kind of get that. So God, give us grace and mercy and the desire to call out to you. God, thank you for that grace and mercy. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.